So, uh, Joe, I, I preached at church this past Sunday. Hey, so you are back in. I, I am back in uh, very, very much provisionally. <laughs> and actually, the pastor of the church, I, I texted him. Um, actually, let me, let me, I'm going to try to pull this up because I, I texted him a couple of days before and just said, um, are we, do you want to read my notes before I go and preach them? Are you, do you want to kind of like know where I'm headed? And he said, um, he said, just don't say deconstructing. <laughs> <laughs> and I texted back and I said, do you mean repenting? And he said, ha 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 ha. <laughs> and then I said, got it. Tell the people they should never revisit their faith. Uh, and never reconsider whether they may have got anything wrong and assume that they've probably been right all along. Um, he laughed at all of that. And then I said, my working sermon title is don't think, just give us your money. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's how it got started. Good. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. Like I felt very, very loose and comfortable in the room. Um, and it was also like, we're getting to, I've, I've tried my best with this community, this group of people, because I have some really good friends in the room. I mean, there's just like, this is a community that I'm, I don't believe most of what they believe. I don't, I'm not even sure that I think that it's, uh, all that important. Um, honestly, like that's, I'm still in that camp pretty solidly. Um, but I, I have kind of tried to make a point to say as often as possible, please don't think of me as Pastor Drew. Think of me more as, if you have to put a title on it, Uncle Drew. Like, <laughs> like I am just your crazy uncle coming in here. He's going to say some stuff that none of us believe, right? None of us agree with. He might be a little tipsy. Like, we don't know exactly. Just let it go. And And I think, honestly, I think that made it really easy for me to just kind of stand and deliver. Um I so talked did you did you use the word deconstruct? I did not use the word deconstructing this time. That's good. Uh, but I did very, which, you know, in this conversation we're about to share with Pete Enns, I even, you know, it, it came up in that conversation too. There were like a couple of things in the sermon um, where I ended up saying things that are, that are on the other side of my own deconstructing and trying to reconstruct. The, like, I know I'm talking to evangelicals who believe, you know, put the blood of Jesus on that. Um, and, and that's how it gets saved. And then I'm teaching a text where Jesus says, you're saved. Um, <laughs> and even in those moments, I was like, Jesus, don't you know how evangelicalism works? Are you not an evangelical? Right. Um, yeah. And we also, I, I also talked about, um, I think the one hard stab I probably took at the room and I, I didn't do it, you know, in a mean way, it was just more of like trying to move everybody a, a good step in a good direction. Um, was to say, you know, because Zacchaeus is very much like it was a money, it, it's a message about money a little bit, um, or at least, you know, it's one way of thinking of this story is someone who kind of wronged people with money. And then he decided to be generous at this point. He's like, I'm going to give away half of what I, I'm going to pay. I'm not just going to pay people back. I'm not just going to make it right. I'm going to give them four times. Like, I want to be a different kind of person um, with my money. Um, but I, I said, you know, we're people who probably think of ourselves as like we take the Bible seriously and literally and we, you know, and I said, but but obviously not on this subject. Right. <laughs> like we don't when when Jesus is asked, like, how do I 
inherit the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. We don't believe him, right? We don't do that. Right. Um, and so that, that gave me a, at least a, a, that's the closest I got to talking deconstruction was just saying, can we all at least admit just a little bit um, that we don't believe some of these things that we say, like we say we're Bible literalists until the Bible literally tells us to do something we don't want to do. <laughs> right. Well, and we say it because um, what I always heard about that passage is, well, Jesus just said that to that one guy about sell everything you have and go to the poor because he was in love with his money. Right. Yeah. yeah. Of course, Jesus said to one guy, be born again. And we're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. That's what that we one. all do. Let's go with that one. <laughs> well, the, you know, part of the point that I made though on the, on the um the money thing was yes i heard the same thing he was just talking to that guy because his problem was his money like yeah well he kind of said it a lot though like (laughs) he did say to the woman who gave the two pennies that she had her entire possession like everything she owned put it in the offering he praised her for doing so like everybody in the book of acts is selling everything they have and giving it to the communion to to the the ones that don't get struck down by and they, they're struck down by god when they don't like um well what was the other i mean there's the good samaritan who like goes out of his way to give a bunch of money away to his enemy to like take care of him and leaves money behind and um it's 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 a lot more pervasive and then the parable of uh the man who stores up in luke 12 i think who he's like a oh, farmer yeah. and he stores up his grain and Jesus tells this parable of like the guy who he has a couple uh, of good years and he's sucker. like, okay, I think I can retire now because I have enough to retire on. And Jesus says, you'll die tonight. This is how it will be for anybody who stores up more than they need. Like he, it wasn't just the rich young ruler. This is something Jesus taught kind of a lot. Um, and I, I just, yeah. But anyways, so am I back in? I don't think so. Uh, We'll see if I get invited back again. But at least you're making some making some money preaching. Hey, that you're gonna store up. <laughs> at least, <laughs> at least to this this whole you know twenty year career thing that I put into, I could still have uh, maybe a little bit um, of of side hustle from teaching this book. Anyway, speaking of this book, uh, the Bible is the one that I was referring to. We have Pete Enns on yep. the show today, the host of not the Bible Project, the Bible for normal people. Which... That was such a good biff. <laughs> this is like it's got to be their greatest competition. It's like you had the CEO of Coca Cola on, and you're like, yeah. the CEO of Pepsi. I know. I, I I'm leaving it in. I'm not going to edit it out because <laughs> yeah, it's also like sincerely. There are two podcasts like this. There are two podcasts on that I listened to before Crisis of Faith exists. There, there were like basically four people who I knew did this kind of conversation. There's the Bible for Normal People, and then there's the Bible Project, and uh, we're talking to Pete Enns, who is kind of the godfather of the whole thing. Like he's he's the one person that I would just say to anybody who really is like I. I don't know what to do with the Bible anymore. I don't know what to do with my faith anymore. I pretty much say if Richard Rohr is too like um, strange for you, too Catholic for you, too whatever for you, she's not Catholic, but like too, too on the other side of the world for you, then talk to Pete Enns. Listen to Pete Enns. It's like that's, um, and then I 
flub that at the very outset of things. <laughs> but he was really gracious and it didn't seem to bother him. You look like a real loser, Drew. <laughs> you uh, embarrassed the show. So now I'm going to write him a very special jingle uh, to try to make it up to him. And then uh, hope you enjoy this really incredible interview. Preacher, if I read the Bible, do I really have to think about it too? Can I just check it off my list as a thing that I did and then do the other things I gotta do? Preacher, it seems like there's too much happening in all the pages of the Bible. Could Pedians come on the show, make it accessible? For all us normal people, yeah. All right. Hey, everybody. We've got uh, Pete Inns in the studio with us today. That's impossible. Uh, that's a lie. The that's Zoom a lie, Joe. You lied. I'm not in the studio <laughs> with you. Well, unless, we're, unless virtual we're in a digital space. nowadays. Okay, that's fine. Just I don't want you to, people to think that I flew out to Pittsburgh or something. To You know, okay. That's true. The man, uh, the myth, the legend, Pete Inns. <laughs> The host of, uh, well, the co-host with with Jared Bias, who was recently interviewed on our on our show earlier this season, uh, of the Bible Project. No, nope, that's the other one. <laughs> we have two. We have two that we talk about all the time. The Bible for normal people. Yes, uh, and the Bible, which for is normal sort of people, a project. Yes, I have a real beef to pick with uh, the Bible for normal people because okay, what's that? It you is the, get in line. The self-proclaimed. <laughs> only god-ordained podcast on the internet well we didn't proclaim it ourselves that's you by definition it's, by, we just received it's that divine revelation with humility and grace and not any sarcasm whatsoever you'd be surprised how many emails we've gotten in the past by people saying you know oh my cat's here marmalade marmalade needs her airtime so just just <laughs> you guys good. can see her there she is she every time i sit down and do a podcast she's all over me and she's an internet sensation by the way so aren't you aren't you marmalade all right get out of here um where were we <laughs> you were talking about how you got your god or your god ordained status oh yes i get these emails from people saying you know we really like your content but don't you think it's a bit arrogant to say that you're the only god ordained <laughs> podcast on the internet? It's like no it's not arrogant it's sort of a joke and others say like if you have to explain it like i've, I've just stopped even answering that stuff if i have to explain it it's not working because yeah. if it sounds a joke well i don't think it's very funny obviously you don't think it's funny, and that's fine it's really you don't have to think it's funny um but others say like you know don't you think other podcasts are ordained by God too? <laughs> no, I don't think any of them are. That's sort of the whole point of this. But uh, <laughs> we did, so we did anyway. an episode. Uh, it was maybe nine months ago or so when we were talking yeah. about the just what talking about the Bible, and we mm. called it "This podcast is the Word of God," um, <laughs> as a bit of tongue which in is cheek, a fact. which is yeah. which is perhaps a fact. I mean, what else would yeah. it be? What uh, else would it be? Right. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah. So I think, I mean, we should probably, this will be like a battle. And whoever whoever says the most profound stuff today, okay. I think, will hold the true title of the only God-ordained podcast. So you're uh, representing the Bible for normal people here. Okay. that uh, That's what's happening. That's what's happening here. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. That's right. It's a competition. <clears throat> um, so I really wanted to talk to you about your book, I don't know when it came out. You probably know how the Bible actually works. Right. That came out in February of 2019. So gosh, almost three years ago, more than two and a half years ago. Yeah. 
I I read the book. We did a series. Um, we actually we've been trying to get you on the show for a while now. Um, we did a series a, a while back that Drew alluded to about the Bible and how to read mm-hmm. it and stuff. And we tried to get you on then, and you were on sabbatical, and then we just kind of kept missing each other and stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I read the book at the time, and it just it's so good. Um, really, one of the like clearest explanations that I had come across of how to read the Bible in a way that is responsible and honest um, and and also takes it really seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, Good. I'm glad for that. So if you want to take us into it a little bit, I mean, you, you say that the Bible is uh, a wisdom book because it's old and it's diverse. Um, can you tell us a little bit about about what yeah. you mean by that yeah it's it's old it's ancient i also say it's ambiguous and it's diverse and those are those are three words that i've come to use to describe the bible not because that's the only way to describe it but those are characteristics of the bible that are they're frankly baked into the page like you can't turn a page of the bible without seeing something that's obviously very ancient there's a lot of diversity and it's it's not a very good rule book. You know, it's ambiguous. It doesn't really tell you what to do, at least not as much as people think that it does. And that's why you need wisdom to sort of handle this book because of these characteristics. And rather than saying, well, it's holy or other labels that show respect for the text, but also don't really describe the text very well because it does these other weird things. And if you start off by having this, um, sort of lofty view of the perfection of the Bible, then you run into the ambiguities, you run into the antiquity of it, you run into the diversity of it. It's like, well, this can't be in a book that God wrote that's like this. So I'd rather start with characteristics of the Bible that I see very plainly, and then talk about how that helps us understand what the Bible is. And so that's that's sort of what I do in the book. And I focus probably mostly on the diversity in the Bible, which I think is of those three terms, to me, that's the most interesting. It's obviously ancient. You know, it's, it's, we're as far removed from the time of David, which is about when the earliest biblical writings would have been maybe a little bit before that. But we're about as far removed from David backwards in time as we're removed from the year 5000 forward in time, just to give us a little bit of an unsettled glance, an unsettling glance at how uh, relatively old this stuff is. And it comes from, you know, different time, different assumptions about the nature of reality, all these kinds of things. And, but that's pretty obvious, you know, everything there is a couple thousand years old, but um, at least 2000 years old. Uh, But that's often forgotten when we talk about the Bible, it becomes and I don't mean this in a mocking way, but it's sort of, you know, God's love letter to you. It's something that's directly relevant to you. There's no gap in time at all. And that can lead to some real confusions in reading it. And, and it's really hard to deny the antiquity of it all. And the ambiguities are, are such that, um, you know, even saying something like, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, which is a command, and it's one that I think Christians should try to live by, among others, but it doesn't tell you what to do. What It doesn't tell you what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, and all those, those things are very hard to do. How do you actually love yourself, right? How do you love your neighbor 
Um, you know, if your neighbor keeps borrowing money from you, do you love your neighbor by giving your neighbor the money? Or when you realize they're probably buying drugs and then you want to stop doing it, what does love mean? And so you don't really, the Bible doesn't tell you what to do. It gives you more trajectories and impressions, but you have to fill in the details. And that's why I say the Bible is a book that gives wisdom, but you also need wisdom to try to understand it, which is like a it seems like a contradiction, but it's, it's more of a paradox, I think. And, and that's sort of how the Bible works. And um, at least, at least the way I think it works and it helps me come to terms with things and that are just sort of weird. And it allows me to argue with it, to debate with it and to say, you know, I know they thought this then, but we might not think this now. And here are the reasons why. And it stops being more of a rule book uh, that it typically is and becomes more of a, um, a, uh, a a partner, I guess, uh, maybe that's not the best word. I, the language I use sometimes is a means of grace. The Bible is something we sort of embrace and enter into, but it's even in the debate and in the dialogue and in the unsettling things you see there, that's where the growth, I think, comes ultimately in, in the life of faith. So, <clears throat> so now have- nobody has to buy it. Which is really <laughs> that's disappointing. Right. That's a, I should not have said that much. Okay. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, we'll uh, we'll encourage people to buy it in a little bit if you'll if you'll give us a little bit more for free. Well, you didn't uh, cover the word searches just now, and the crossword right, like yeah. the activities. You need to buy it still <laughs> yeah. for the activity pages. That's true. Yeah, and then the coloring and and the pop up books, the stuff. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, absolutely. And I love Joe. I don't want to cut you off, but no, you're but good. Just hearing you use the word ambiguous. Um, to describe the Bible, actually, I find very uh, helpful. I think I think something that we just I would have loved to have heard that from from more leadership growing up and from just the people who handed me the Bible, just for them to say, because it was often handed to me as the blueprint for life, like just mm-hmm. do what this says. I saw a meme the other day that said, let's play Bible roulette. Here's the rules. Open the Bible to any page, do exactly what it says. The last one goes to jail wins. We were always handed this as a, it's the blueprint for life. Just do what it says. And then, um, you know, I, I made a habit of saying in the past few years, even, even as a pastor, like if the Bible is a blueprint for how to live, it's, it's not a very good, well-written one. I'm not saying it's not a good book. I'm just saying if this is meant to tell you what to do and what not to do, it's it's got too many pages. If this is like, here's what you should do with your life, mm-hmm. 3,000 pages worth of narrative and stories and often, you know, people who disagree with each other is is too ambiguous right. for that. There's, there's definitely something so right. much more rich than that happening here. So It needs to be much shorter to get to the point. And I think this is why you know, Christians who feel that way about the Bible, it's, it's sort of God's book of direction and, you know, instructions before leaving earth, right? Um, th- I think that's one reason why they sometimes gravitate towards the laws, because they're very clear, you know, but the thing is that they're not. That's, that's just the thing. <laughs> they're not clear. And you have, you know, for people who read these things closely, it's not just like, I don't know what to do with this because I don't own cattle that are going into my neighbor's property and <laughs> knocking a fence down or something. I just, I don't have, I don't know how to relate to that. 
but also looking at the laws in Exodus, and then there are parallel laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and more than just a couple of times, these laws, they conflict, they don't say the same thing, which raises theological issues that, you know, this is, I'm not saying anything that's remotely new, people have known this for, you know, over 2000 years. And there's a whole history of interpretation in Judaism and Christianity to sort of address some of these things. Um, so it's, it's almost like it's self-defeating to go to the things that look most like commands and just, we just do these and then we're safe. And then we sort of, well, okay, have, forget those other laws, just the 10 commandments, which are fine. They're great. You know, I mean, I don't disagree with any of them, but how do you do it? You know, just yeah. talk, get people talking about do not kill. It doesn't mean kill. It doesn't mean murder. How about self-defense? You know, um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, which means don't work on the Sabbath. Okay, well, what's work? You know, there's the, Judaism has a robust history of di- discussing work is these things, but not these other things. Hmm. So it it gives you like a direction, but it doesn't tell you what to do. And this is why there is, again, a history of discussion and debate in both Judaism and Christianity about, okay, what do we do with these commands of God? What do we do with these things, right? And then you get to, you know, Colossians for Christians, and it's like, yeah, there are no Sabbaths, you know, we don't do that stuff, you know, it's like, okay, well, how do you work this in with everything else, right? Or, um, you know, so it's just, it's, to me, like you said, you know, this is, this is, interesting to me you know this is not a problem this is more understanding and getting to know the character of this bible which opens up doors for being curious and and trying to explore how does it connect with our lives here and now and that is a deep theological question this and there's no there's no pamphlet for that it's it's just you have to live in it and and work through it and be around people who want to do that too So you gave us a couple of examples just now of like some of the diversity. What you mean by diversity in the Bible is not like human diversity, even though there's some of that too, but that there are different things. Like there are contradictory statements in the Bible that lead us in different directions, right? Um, And there are tons more. You should buy the book because there are lots more examples of this. Um, But could you maybe take us into a little bit of what you mean by the Bible is ancient or, you know, why does that matter? Cause I can imagine mm-hmm. hearing that 10 years ago and thinking, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Like the Bible's basic instructions before leaving earth that was written a long time ago, or the Bible's God's yeah. love letter to me that was written mm-hmm. a long time ago. And like, who, who cares? What does that mean for how we read it? Right. Well, you know, the antiquity of it is hard to escape. You get it as soon as you open it, the very first chapter, it has a view of, you know, the creation of the earth and the sky. And then there's a dome and there's, you know, there's a space above the dome and that's where God dwells or the divine beings dwell. And, and, you know, right there, you're entering into a world that would have made some sense in the, in, in the ancient times. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about how, Genesis 1 echoes other stories of the time, uh, actually older stories. There's some echo of, of Canaanite stories there. There's uh, some echoes of Babylonian stories, echoes a little bit of Egyptian stories too. And that 
if, if that's, you know, the, that's the context of, of this creation story, right? And to, to sort of say, well, that doesn't matter. Well, it, it sort of does, you know, I say, I mean, there's an innocent example, like it's nice knowing who Pharisees were when we read the gospels. It's just nice knowing what Pharisees did, what Sadducees did. It's nice knowing what their political leanings were, what their theologies were, how they differed, because it helps us understand maybe something about some of these debates that Jesus has with Pharisees and Sadducees. And very few people would disagree with that. But that's also an acknowledgement of the antiquity of it all, that there is a context within which these debates make sense. And that goes for every single square inch of the Bible. There is an ancient context. This was written at a time very different from our own. And it's helpful to at least try to understand something of that as much as we can. You know, we can't go back there in a, in a time capsule, but we can, we can make heads or tails of a lot of this stuff by paying attention to the ancient context in which it was written. Um, I don't think Genesis 1, for example, is sort of a, a veiled attempt at talking about the Big Bang. And, and some do. I just disagree with it. I mean, people can think what they want about that. I just disagree because that makes no sense. You know, well, what about there being light at the very beginning? Well, there was also light in the Babylonian creation story at the beginning, right? So it's, you can explain that contextually. You don't have to say, well, since it's the Bible, it's got to be speaking our language, our scientific language. And the fact of the matter is, forgive me, but it doesn't. It doesn't speak our scientific language. And, but we do, we do live in a scientific world, right? We, we do take things for granted the ancients didn't. And so that's our challenge. You know, one of the many challenges we have is how to be in conversation with an ancient tradition, Christianity, which has its roots in an even more ancient book, while we're living in a time that these biblical writers never remotely imagined. Right. It, it doesn't do just take proof texts in that case. It, you have to think more holistically. You have to think theologically. I mean, I hate using the big words. You have to use think hermeneutically, and you have to do it in community. And that community is not just the people around you, but it's people you might even have some disagreements with. And it's people in the past who have looked at some of these things as well. It's quite a challenge, but you know, that's why there are Bible colleges and seminaries and graduate schools and yeshivas, because there is a lot to think about and there's a lot to learn. Well, Genesis, one thing is pretty easy. I mean, the world was just created in six days, just like it says, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the question is, why does the author say that? And that's worth digging into in about a two hour episode of, of this podcast, <laughs> you know, it's a, but it is, that's just it. It is interesting. And, and for people who might feel overwhelmed, my, my suggestion is, listen, you don't have to like do everything at once. And it is study. It is, you, you do have to study this stuff. It's God's not just going to do the heavy lifting for you. I'll tell you, just, just trust me, pray really hard before you read and you'll have all the answers. No, you have to work at it very hard. It's a works righteousness thing, reading the Bible. You got to work at it and, um, and, and discover and read. And even if, I mean, I think a great way of doing this is getting a good study Bible that will help explain context, will help explain things like, here, here's what scholars think about who wrote this and maybe when it was written, and here's why. And, oh, that's interesting. You know, keep reading, see if that helps. Um, 
if people are interested, I'm not, this is not a commercial, but on my website someplace on, on the Bible for Normal People website in the uh, blog posts, if you just go in and search study Bibles, I have a couple of posts that I put up a few years ago about study Bibles that I recommend that I think do a very good job of that. Not all of them do. Some are more defensive, but um, some are more exploratory and curious. And if people want that sort of thing, the, there are resources out there. I'll try to hunt those down and put the links in the okay. description here. Awesome. So this is a little bit of a pushback question, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm wondering... <laughs> if it was in my contract, there would be no pushback whatsoever. All right, God. Um, you know, so you say... I, at least this is how I understood the book to say that what makes the Bible it is it is precisely the ambiguity that makes the Bible a wisdom text because you have to do the work you have to you're, you're given a direction a trajectory and you have to put in the effort to figure out what that means for you today, um, which seems right to me. But it also means that any other ancient collection would work the same way, right? Any go walk into any library and you're going to find contradictory material. Mm -hmm. um, so is there anything then unique about the Bible? Like, isn't every library a wisdom text in that sense? Well, I think a, a very good thing to be thinking about here is how good of a question that is. And there isn't just a quick, easy answer to that. Because the fact is that other religious traditions have sacred texts, which do many of the same things ours does, you know, and, and that's just the way it is when you have, you know, people writing, you know, and, and whatever Christians think, and there, there are different views on what it means for the Bible to be inspired, right, or to be revealed by God. And all those things are good to think about, and I think about them too. But however we define those things, our definitions of things like revelation or inspiration have to take into account things like diversity, right? I mean, uh, th those words don't let you off the hook of dealing with the data in the Bible itself, right? So that's the first thing I would say is like, it's a good question, but um, the, the fact that thinking of the Bible as a wisdom book might feel like you're running a truck over things like the, an inspired unique text the fact that it causes theological problems doesn't mean it's wrong, mm. right? I mean, does that make sense? It, the, the fact that a wisdom Bible rather than, let's say, a rule book Bible, the fact that that might cause some theological problems for some people, which I understand, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to think of the Bible as a wisdom book. It just means you have a theological problem and you have to address it somehow. And I think that's that should be seen as an enjoyable challenge and not a fretting thing like, oh no, I used to be so sure, but now I'm not sure anymore. Yeah, you used to be sure because you weren't thinking about it as deeply as you are now, right? So now you're thinking more deeply and you're seeing the complexities of it. And you say, well, listen, maybe my theology has to continue growing with what I'm seeing here in the Bible, right? So, but the other part of the question is, um, it's a harder one to answer. I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be frank with you about what makes the Bible unique. And I think what makes it unique among other things is the overarching narrative that it gives. It does, when I say the Bible is a wisdom book, I'm not saying that it's not a narrative, a story, because it's primarily that. 
It's just, it takes wisdom to understand what the story is about and where the story is going. Right. So I would say it's, you know, it's, it's a story that portrays God in various ways. And for Christians, it's the climactic portrayal of God is what we see in Christ. And, you know, I would say very much so in the crucifixion as well. So it, I would say it's on the level of the story that it tells, not that it's accurate in science or not that it tells us what to do or not that it's accurate in all historical things. You know, it's, you can have a book like that, that has an overarching narrative that also has contradictions in it because it's written over a thousand year period of time, at least. And times change and people change and personalities change, perspectives change, but you still have it. And I think it's wonderful that, you know, the, the, the Jews that basically were responsible for canonizing their scriptures, uh, the Christian Old Testament, they saw that diversity and they included it. They could have, they, there are things they excluded. They could have included, uh, excluded like the book of Chronicles, which is a very different take on Israel's history than Samuel or Kings, but they kept them. You know, they kept Deuteronomy and the book of Job, which doesn't really line up with the theology of Deuteronomy. It's a different kind of book. They kept Ecclesiastes, even though it's like, it's pretty negative. <laughs> it, it's not the most glowing report of what you're, the God of Israel is like, you know, so and the New Testament too, you know, the, the, the canonization of the New Testament included four gospels that don't always see eye to eye. They, who, you know, have had probably a difference of opinion on how you look at works, right? And, and we know that even from the book of Galatians, where Paul pretty much says, yeah, I didn't really like James or Peter, but they finally came around. <laughs> you know, that's sort of what he says. And, and I just think, you know, this is, this is to look at that as a positive, right? Yeah, it's not, it's, it's unique in its own way, right? It's distinctive in its own way. It's just not distinctive in the way that I was told it had to be distinct. And understanding the something of the character of the Bible is the result of study. It's the result of reading and learning and absorbing it. It's not a quick tweet size statement that then governs everything else you ever read. That's, that's actually not respecting the Bible. That's disrespecting it. It's, it's, it's cramming it into categories that it might not even be prepared to handle. I feel like this is, this is a, a recurring theme for us is coming back around to this part of the conversation where um, Joe and I have, have often felt um in totally separate and, and different ways. I've kind of been in some version of evangelicalism all along. Um, a lot of uh, pretty charismatic cultures like church planting kind of um, mm -hmm. that, that brand. Um, and he's been in more mainline Protestant, but we've both had this experience over and over and over again of kind of the pushback of people saying, you are not respecting the text when you ask these kinds of questions, when you, um, and me feeling like saying, no, 
<laughs> it's because I res- it's because I actually mm-hmm. read it. It's because I actually looked into it that I now am having this crisis of faith. <laughs> um, like, well, was- and you're also part of a conversation Drew, that's been going on for a long time. Yeah, you're just becoming alerted to it now. You know, that's and that's it. the thing too. I mean, to, to hear to just, I really want to. Gr- I agree with you. I want to grab people and say, listen. I'm reading it very carefully and I'm seeing these things, but I'm not seeing anything that hasn't been seen before. Yeah. And there are people who've been living for, you know, who lived a long time ago, who were, who there's very little we can see that hasn't been seen by somebody, you know, and they talk about it. So that's true. That's true. Even when you talk about the, the tiny little, I hadn't heard it expressed the way that you just said it about the, even the, the tiny little, uh, contradictions and the big old contradictions that you may find even in just just narrative historical contradictions like how many people showed up at the tomb of Jesus mm-hmm. we're not I, I've heard those defended all my life and I've heard people say like well here's why this says that and that's it and here's why they're not contradicting each other and no one I've never heard anybody say before this moment like don't you think they noticed that <laughs> don't you think exactly that's said, just Let's it and they didn't care accounts? Yeah, they yeah they're not idiots. I mean, you know, <laughs> the thing is that it didn't care. And that's, I mean, maybe one of the big lessons for people to hear in this is that the, the modern conception of the authority of the Bible, and I'll throw the word inerrancy in there as well, that's not the historic view of the church. I'll be very blunt about it. It's not like they did, they weren't like a bunch of liberals who didn't care, you know, but it wasn't like that, but they just, they had a different view of books and what they do and, and what it means to read them well, you know, and, and it didn't, it, it wasn't sort of like they were all proto evangelicals or fundamentalists back, you know, the fourth and fifth century, they weren't, they were actually very sophisticated philosophical thinkers who understood something about the nature of literature and, and were content to, well, this has to be read allegorically. This is weird. There's no way God would ever tell people to do this. This must be an allegory, right? Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's how they thought because they weren't, they wouldn't impugn evil motives on God, you know, whether it's the Canaanite thing or whether it's, uh, you know, so there are other things in the Bible that just seem like really weird. Why would God do this? And it just, so they, the way they process that, some of them, not all of them, was, you know, an allegorical reading. And an allegorical reading was, very much a part of the history of the church for almost 1500 years, right? So that's normal, right? The abnormal started with the Protestant Reformation, and there's one meaning for each text, and you've got to get it, and you get very scientific about it, and people can disagree about what those meanings are, right? They, they can have different impressions about well, I think, you know, the, the moral meaning of, is this. Well, somebody else might say, well, I know I think it's this. And that's okay, because the Bible works that way. It's, it's more like, you know, Walter Brueggemann, who's uh, one of my favorite uh, biblical scholars, uh, talks about the Bible as sort of being a compost pile, <laughs> which is a pile of crap. I mean, somebody might say that, but it's a compost pile. It's out, the thing out of which the plants grow. Right. So the Bible is is the thing that nurtures different interpretive traditions and engaging the text in different ways. And some of them may grow, you know, cucumbers, other zucchini, (laughs) carrots or maybe flowers. It's just different things grow out of it. And I think that's such a healthy 
positive view of the Bible, because what it really does is it drives people to rely on God, first of all, for their lives and not their ability to understand the text, which is always faulty anyway. And it also drives us into community, I think. We're, we're not going to just, not just me and my Bible in the morning with a cup of coffee. You're dealing with other people and you're wondering what they think. And you're trying to correct your views or adjust your views or whatever. And I think that's the way it's supposed to be. And that is a very Jewish way, by the way. I mean, not, not to oversimplify, but Jewish ways of engaging the text tend to be more like what I just described than Christian. And I think that's a real shame. You know, we, we, we're the ones who have this inerrant Bible that um, tells us exactly what God's thinking and don't stray from it. And if you're thinking too hard, you probably don't have faith. I wonder, let's like, um, this might be out of the scope of, of the book that we're talking about right now, but, uh, you know, you talk about allegorical interpretation as a way of sort of, um, frankly, as a way of subjugating the text to a, a belief about God, right? We, we wouldn't think that God acts in this way, mm-hmm. so we, we have to read this differently. Um, and I mean, Jesus teaches us to do that sort of thing too, right? Like we talk about this all the time. Jesus says, if you're, you know, if your kid asks for a fish sticks, you're not going to give him a plate full of snakes. Mm-hmm. So God has to be at least that good of a parent too. Like, so if you see something in the text, you have to, your, your view of God that is given to you has to trump that. Right. <laughs> um, right. and, but the thing is that allegorical interpretation i think doesn't it's just not that compelling to to most modern readers i think it's not compelling at all to most modern readers even though i think they do it but it's still not compelling as a theory but yeah so what do we do like what is the way that now when you're reading the text and you come across the notion that god you know flooded the whole world or whatever what like what do you do with it (laughs) keep reading um (laughs) well i i mean i wouldn't like I, I try to discourage people to come across that like early on in their life of Bible reading, because people say start at the beginning of the Bible. Oh no. <laughs> Genesis is, I mean, the first few chapters of Genesis have um, some of the more complicated parts of the Bible, which is people say, well, God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't start off by confusing us. Don't presume to know what God does or doesn't do. That to me, I, that's, that's a non-starter for me. It's like, really, you, you know the mind of God that well. But it's just, it's the way that the, the, the story begins with Genesis 1, and there it is. But it's, it's complicated, and it involves all sorts of things of understanding something of the antiquity of these stories. And, and um, all, all, just there are a number of factors, we won't get into it here, but a lot of factors that are involved in that. So um, I think that's something just for people to um, uh, come to terms with, I guess, you know, and, and, and to do it like joyfully with a sense of the Bible being more than we can handle in, in a good sense. It's beyond us, you know, in the way that God is beyond us. They're not the same thing, God and the Bible, but still, you know, it's, it's, it's a text that we're trying to commune with God through it. And what makes us think that's going to be easy? Whoever told us that lie, that this is going to be, oh, easy. It's like my pal next to me and just get to me. This is, no, this is, 
if you get anything from the Bible, you won't get a God like that, right? It's there, there's something that's other and awesome and unpredictable and mysterious. And, and that's, that's where all this Bible stuff leads. And I think any view of the Bible in my, this is my opinion, of course, that minimizes all that is really not a good way of thinking about it. It's just going to run us into a, a false security or just into a lot of problems down the road. When you start seeing the diversity, you start seeing the antiquity and all of a sudden it's like, why didn't anybody tell me this stuff was there? And I'm like, I've been trying to tell you this. (laughs) You didn't want to hear, you know, but again, see, none of this is like, I'm not making any of this up. It's not rocket science. People know this, right? Yeah. It's just, if you're raised in a certain way, as you guys have been describing, and I understand that way very well too, that's the problem. It's not the Bible. It's, it's the way it's the expectations we were taught we have to have about this text. And that's what gets in the way. Well, you're straying from the Bible, right? Like Drew, you were saying before, you know, like people say you're just attacking the Bible or something like that. And, you know, I have this thing that I, I, I love when people say to me, like in, in an audience or something, you're attacking the Bible. I say, no, I'm attacking you. You just don't know the difference between the two, right? Those two, see, those two things are not the same thing, right? You know, how it's more your view of it than the Bible itself. It's only when you equate your view with what it is, that's when you run into some trouble. And to be flexible about that and curious and, and open to change, you know, I've changed a lot. And I mean, I'm 60 now, I've changed a lot in my views in the past 30, 40 years. And it's because of, in part because of just i keep reading this thing you know and it's like i didn't never saw that before that's that's interesting well that's different from over there how come you know so you have a you don't have a panic attack when the bible does weird stuff you have a sense of curiosity because your faith doesn't depend on the bible being a certain kind of thing yeah i um you know i uh I've been a preacher for quite some time. And then for quite a while here recently, I've not been a preacher, (laughs) but this past Sunday, I actually preached in an evangelical church and was just trying to, you know, I I tried to choose a text where I wouldn't have to mess with anything too complicated or say anything that, that felt disingenuous to me or anything like that. And even within the, even within the text, I was teaching from Zacchaeus uh, the story of Zacchaeus, the the wee little man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a wee little man was he. Yeah, as I recall, so yeah. <laughs> which is which? Maybe you could correct me, but seems like a really arbitrary point uh, to be made yeah. in the story. Like it doesn't. It's not part of the story at all, really. It's just yeah. it seems like somebody's mad at Zacchaeus and wants to make that point that <laughs> make sure they know he's tiny. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I was just I, I came across two different places in this uh in this very text where i was um the the one the one that was the most difficult to to reconcile jesus has this moment with zacchaeus where he says salvation has come to you today um and then i i realized like oh i either need to ignore that verse (laughs) or yeah something else because this church these people believe a certain thing about this um, sacrificial death of Jesus as an atonement right. sins in the only path of salvation. Yet Jesus isn't in on that. Um, for some reason, right. he doesn't know that that's how it works. Uh, and mm-hmm. he declares that salvation has arrived 
in this moment. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in this kind of uh, really strange moment in an evangelical church as a, a bit of maybe a post evangelical myself, like trying to just play by the rules, yet discovering that if you just read the text, you find so many things <laughs> that yeah. were richer and more complicated than you ever thought they were before. You can't even you can't even try to be nice about some of the things. Well, the Bible doesn't behave itself according to, again, I, I don't mean to make this too sweeping a statement. I, I mean, I know plenty of evangelicals who understand the complexities of it. I'm, I'm not trying to make, you know, too blanket a condemnation here, but, um, you know, the if if you come to the Bible with certain expectations that aren't really supported by the Bible, reading the Bible is going to be a big, and you're always going to be apologetics, basically. You're defending it, like you're saying, you know, here, here's how, you know, the different versions of the resurrection scene of the Gospels, here's how they're not contradictory, or they're really consistent with each other, or here's how Chronicles and Kings are actually saying the same thing, even though they're saying the opposite thing. It's that kind of almost like alchemy we have to do to try to make all this stuff work. And it, but the thing is that I just want to stress, that's not the Bible's problem. That's yeah. our problem when yeah. we bring upon it expectations. It's simply not created to bear. It's almost as if, I mean, I like to joke with my students and say, listen, it's like, okay, one day, like Moses goes up to God and says, listen, um, we'd like to have a Bible to write all this stuff down because it's good to pass it on to people. And God says, no, I don't think that's a good idea because people are going to start mistaking the Bible for me. And we don't want that. You might just think that you can read this and that's all you have to do, but you have to really trust me. No, it'll be fine. That that won't happen. Don't worry about that. So just just do it. So God says, okay, fine. We'll have a Bible, but tell you what, just to to make sure you don't get the wrong idea, we're going to start it off with two contradictory creation stories. that don't reconcile with each other. That's We'll start with that. And then we'll have also a talking snake and a magic tree in the middle of a garden, just so you know, like you might have to think about this stuff. It's metaphorical. And then I'm going to have two very different histories of, uh, of the history of Israel in the Old Testament. And I'm going to have, you know, laws, not just laws in one location, but laws all over the place that it's either they didn't know the other one or they just flatly disagree with the other one. And, you know, I just, I just think the Bible that we have is wonderful. You know, I mean, who am I to say, I think it's great. You know, I I love studying it. I love reading it, but being relieved of the burden of it's, it's again, that sort of like 10 point law code. That's crystal clear. What's wrong with you. Right. So when people say the Bible clearly says, my ears always prick up. It's like, "Mm, I wonder where this is going to go. Because you can say, I think the Bible says pretty clearly. That's a very different statement. I think it does. Here's why I think it does. But to say the Bible is clear on X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Less often than we might think. Yeah. This is maybe shifting gears a little bit, but it made me think of it. You talked about starting off your reading of the Bible life in Genesis and how (laughs) difficult that might be. Um, And I don't think that you meant this, but we have people ask us a lot on this show, like, okay, I've gone through a crisis of faith. I'm doing some deconstructing uh, and I've sort of renewed the way, like I'm coming at the Bible now in a richer, fuller, Hmm. more ancient way. Um, But I've like still got to take my kids to church and they don't have the capacity to do this. And I don't like, 
I have no idea how to read the Bible to my kids anymore. People ask us this all the time. And I, I just say, yeah, me either. <laughs> so uh, let's well, see what Pete thinks about it. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, there are a couple of things there. I think that's a very, very important question. Being a grandfather now, I've got a four-year-old and almost two-year-old, um, uh, you know, that don't live too far away from here. So, so I get to infect them on a regular basis with my <laughs> bad thinking, but um and, you know, my daughter, she's thinking through this stuff, too. And I know a lot of young parents who are thinking through, I really like Jesus a lot. I don't know if I want to send my kids even to church because I'm afraid they're just going to need therapy when they're 30s. Right. Which is what happens. So I think one thing to say to that is, you know, when they say, I still have to send my kids to church, I, I think it's good to do that. But you might have to be really careful about the church home that you pick. And that might even involve leaving the church that you're in. And I don't say that lightly because that's a big deal. Yeah. You've got friends there and stuff like that. But I think, I think no church is better than a church that will teach you growing up that science is evil or just, you know, glibly, talking with young children about very violent episodes in the Bible. There are plenty of stories you can go to that you don't have to go to the violent stories, but we tend to like, you know, little boys like Joshua because of the conquest and they carry swords and the flood stories about nice animals and God keeps his promises and things like that. And it's, it's really, God's really pissed off. It's a sixth chapter of the Bible and everybody dies. You know, that's not exactly an evangelistic tract and it's certainly not for children, you know? So I would, I would, think that that's that's what needs to be is, is to find a context for the children where uh, those things aren't going to be fronted you know i've been um this may help somebody I, i've been going to an episcopal church for about 10 years now and it's a different world you know and there are different kinds of episcopal churches just understand that but i remember once uh, my wife was teaching in um like a junior high or, or elementary age uh, uh, Sunday school class. And I went in because it was running late. I just sat and watched for a while. And uh, the kids were on, on the, on the uh, wall was a timeline, you know, like that big butcher paper. It, it's like yeah. four yeah. feet high and it goes, it's like 20 feet long. And they did a timeline of, of creation. And it started with the big bang and then like you've got cavemen right and then like the first historical thing that has a biblical theme to it was abraham because they're not being taught to think of the creation mm -hmm. stories and the flood as being you know anchored in history or, or, or anything like that um have they not been so, to the museum no they have not been to the museum i guess you know but again that's a different perspective it's sad. um it's very sad uh i'm sad i know for not going but i was invited there once and i just said i don't really i mean i appreciate it <laughs> but no they meant well they really they weren't trying to like right, come after course. me even though yeah, they've done that sure. but um i said i don't want to drive to kentucky anyway i can see it on the internet but um but the thing is here's the interesting thing so what do the kids do in Sunday school? Well, they were taught, they're being taught the liturgy of worship. Very interesting, right? Uh, the Orthodox Church does something like that as well, because they're not defined by biblicism. They're defined by 
the act of worship of God, which of course involves the Bible and stories and reading and preaching on things. It's, it's not devoid of the Bible. It's just not the center. So I think, you know, parents are going to have a problem, that very same problem that you just mentioned, they're going to have that if they stay inside of a biblicistic church. Yeah. Because they, they exist in order to promote a particular view of the Bible that works until you start looking at it too closely and until you start asking questions. And then, you know, I, I just, I have memories of when my kids were young and one church we were in. And uh, again, I'm, I'm only saying this to help if, if it helps people, but uh, it was a very small church. It was the six kids in the Sunday school class grades, like junior high through high school, very small. And the teacher was a nice kid. He was a seminarian, sort of overzealous about some things, but he wanted to teach the students about, um, the kids about the, um, the self-authenticating nature of scripture. That just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? The self-authenticating, <laughs> yeah. which means that there's no proof for why, this, why the Bible is the word of God. It authenticates itself. It's the word of God because it's the, it says it's the word of God. And that's a common, that's, that's in, in yeah. reformed Calvinist teachings. That's a very common thing. I'm sure that's very common among evangelicals and fundamentals as well. You don't have to defend it. It just is the word of God because we know it is because it says so and we trust God. Somewhat circular reasoning, right? So my son, who's like 14 at the time, he just raised his hand and he said, every religion is self-authenticating. What makes the Bible any different? right? Which was your question before, right? And the answer he got was not, that's, you know, that is a good question to think about. The answer he got was, if you were really reformed, you wouldn't even ask a question like that. And that's when he came home and he said, I'm done. Yeah. Right. And, and the answer was probably him. right. That's, he probably <laughs> wasn't really, really reformed enough. Right. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is that, so you can't ask a question that's just so patently logical. Yeah. Like, wait a minute, it's self-authenticating, but, you know, do you clearly, do that with the Quran? You know, clearly do, God, didn't, God didn't pick you to be one of his special boys uh, or you wouldn't well, ask a question. Well, that's just it, you know, but <laughs> sorry, that's, but that's imagine though, imagine somebody like him staying in that environment. Yeah. And, and burying the cognitive dissonance for 10 years and 20 years and 30 years and becoming bitter and not even knowing why. And then just saying, I'm throwing the whole thing out the window when they're 50 because I've just been listening to a pack of lies. Well, at 14, you already knew. Mm -hmm. And you should have done something. And so I've always sort of applauded my son for saying, no. Yeah, good. For, I can't imagine God doesn't honor that, right? So I, I guess we're really on that important question. Let me just finally just say this. I think whatever parents can do to create a culture of curiosity with their children and of asking questions is normal, right? So when you read the Adam and Eve story and the snake starts talking and your kid says, like my son said when he was six, uh, dad, animals don't talk. You can say, yeah, they don't. <laughs> That's a good question. I, I'm, I, I think this is probably a story, you know, and, but, but let's see what, what the moral of the story is, if that helps with the kid, right? So rather than saying, how dare you? Yeah. God may be listening to you right at this very second. How <laughs> dare you say something like that? Because otherwise it's just like cartoons on a Saturday morning or, or a Disney movie, right? Where the animals are talking all the time. It becomes just another fairy tale. And 
the Adam and Eve story is worthy of our adult attention, not not a child's sort of like reaction to it. And and but that's a good question the child asks and go with it, run with it. But what if they have the wrong answer? What will God think? I don't know what God will think, but I don't think God's all that concerned about us. Like, you know, you only got an 87 on this last theology test. You know, you need to get up to at least an A minus or else, I don't know, you can't continue on. You know, it's just, we're just people. We're trying to make sense of this stuff, you know, and what if God is on our side and not against us? Hmm. What if it's not a competition? Yeah. I mean, dude, I know uh, uh, having to, tamp down questions because you're ashamed for asking them when you're a kid is the reason that I'm a bitter, angry bastard today, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he is indeed. <laughs> See, it's not that you've been listening to false teaching. It's that your, your basic human instincts are not being honored. Mm-hmm. And of course, what do we hear? What have we heard? But I'm sure you guys have heard this. Don't trust your instincts. Yeah. You're a fallen right. sinful person. Yep. Your instincts are bad and wrong and evil. It's like, yeah, but hmm, I just think about this for a second. I mean, are you telling me you don't have instincts? Are you telling me that, you know, your, your understanding of the Bible thwarts my human instincts? What if, what if God's actually in and with all of us? And what if that nagging, th- you know, that moment, it's like, you just know. <laughs> like this person who I liked so much, what I wanted to ask out, they just don't like me. You know, and I'm finally like I'm finally coming to terms. I just know it. You know, you, you have to just go with that knowledge. You know, you just have to, or at least say, "Listen, here's what I am here. I don't think the flood story happened. I can't talk to anybody about that. But if I'm being honest with myself, this is what I think. I could be wrong, right? But that's what I think. If we can't do that in churches, there'll be no churches left, People which might be a good thing." People will leave by the millions every year for like the past 40 years. (laughs) Yeah, where they they find other ways of having community. I mean, people don't leave Jesus necessarily, they just leave the church. And yeah, you know, that's why there are other churches to go to. There's a lot of diversity in the churches in North America, for example, you know, and and you have to go visit and see, but you know, there are traditional liturgically minded communions that don't have and it's shocking when at first like they're not hung up about the same stuff everybody else i've ever known is hung up about you know and why well that's that's it's a different way of thinking well pete we want to honor your time that you gave us um is there something you want to promote here what are you working on people should find you on your podcast bible for normal people when is this coming out uh, in about three weeks, four okay. weeks, something yeah. like that. Well, I just, I wrote a few months, a few weeks ago, it came out um, a little commentary on Exodus, Exodus for Normal People, which the audio version is going to be released pretty soon. Um, and also the uh, 10th anniversary edition of a book I wrote, well, 10 years ago, duh, uh, <laughs> uh, The Evolution of Adam, which is sort of me talking about evolution and Christianity and how those two things can be in conversation with each other. Uh, but that's coming out. And also along with that, if you go to our website, we have uh, a six-week video. 
video-based course on that. Do about 10, 15 minutes of video each week. It's not, that's not one video, but just, and then a lot of study questions and things for people to, to be thinking about in groups. So that's, those are the big things that are happening right now with, with the stuff that I've worked on. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link all that. Thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate Absolutely. it. Uh, yeah, just, sure, we'll, we'll need a soundbite. So can, are you ready to admit that Crisis of Faith is the other God-ordained podcast on the internet? I I will wait for revelation from God to determine that. I don't want to jump into that too much, but provisionally, yes, sure, of course, why not? All right, that's good. We can edit that out just a yes. (laughs) I can't just give a yes to that question. We can edit it straight to the yes. (laughs) Oh, good. Preacher, if I read the Bible, do I really have to think about it too? Can I just check it off my list as a thing that I did and then do the other things I gotta do? Preacher, it seems like there's too much happening in all the pages of the Bible. Could Pedians come on the show, make it accessible for all us normal people? Yeah.